May the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please be seated? Reflecting on Romans 8, Ray Ortland wrote, O Father, your love has provided everything. You marked me with your love before time began. You provided a Savior for me long ago. You sent your Spirit to me, prompting the movements of faith within my dead heart. It is all of grace, all of love, all of you. Father, I give my life back to you. It's a beautiful summary of the response that Romans 8 should prompt in the heart of every Christian. I actually want to encourage you, if you have not done so, after the service, go home, read all of Romans 8, and then read it again and again. Sit in this beautiful chapter and hear the promise of God that is contained within it. This is one of those chapters in Scripture that can grip us and that can change us. And so do that. Sit with it and let the Lord work on you as you read it. It's one of those chapters that that brings to mind to me that great Anglican collect that we are to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest God's holy word. And so I encourage you all to do that after the service this Sunday. Because what we find when we do that is that this chapter began with an incredible truth. That there is, in fact, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the Father sent Jesus to put sin to death within us. We then heard how our Father has made us his children. As Christians, we can uniquely call God Father. And live with that father-child relationship that both we and he long for. Paul then culminates this most hopeful chapter with the incredible truth that God is for us. God is for you, my friend. He's on your side. He desires the best for you. And if he is for you, then truly, who could be against you? Paul was not blind to the reality of suffering and difficulty in this world. After all, he suffered for the faith far more than many of us ever will. And yet, as he reflected on the grace and the the steadfast love and the providential working of God in this world, he would declare without hesitation that God is for his people. He is for you. Today, in this place, God is for you. And to see how God is for us, we're actually going to begin in the middle of our passage today. We're going to look first at how God is for us in his gracious work on our behalf. Then we'll look at how God is shown to be for us through his gift of assurance. And then finally, how God is for us through his help 
in this life. So let's dive into our passage. Let's look first at how God is for us in his gracious work on our behalf. Of the many quotable verses in this passage, verse 28 stands at or near the top of the list. We read there, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a wonderful verse, isn't it? Especially since we tend to only read part of it. It's the challenge we have with much of this chapter, actually. There's there's certain parts or certain words that grab our attention, and then we forget all about what's going on around those words or or sections. And so in this case, we read, all things work together for good, and we stop. We take those words and we assume they mean that the Lord is going to bless us with the perfect life. That if something goes wrong, no big deal, something better is around the corner. After all, when God closes a door, he opens a window. And just like all of our little phrases and sayings that we like to come up with, there's elements of truth to it. But what's actually being taught here is far better than the Lord doing what is good in our eyes. Paul doesn't tell us that the Lord will work things out in the ways we want them or the ways we think should happen. No. What he says is, for those who love God, meaning genuine Christians, those who follow Jesus out of faith and love for him, not what they can get from him, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes... His purpose, that's the key here. Not ours, His. And so, of course, the question that comes to mind is, what does that mean? Perhaps with a little bit of nervousness or anxiety welling up inside of us, we're wondering what on earth does that mean? Well, thankfully, Paul tells us in verse 29. He writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, many of us will probably have missed it, because guess what? One of those words popped up. The second we read the word predestined, we started getting in our heads and our feelings about, well, that word can't possibly mean what I think it can. And so we missed everything else that was said here. We'll get to predestination in a moment. We're not going to ignore it. But first... Look at what Paul tells us about God's purpose for those who love him. They are to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, it's God's desire and God's will and God's purpose to make you more like Jesus each and every day. It is God's purpose in your life to day by day change your heart, your mind, and your actions to be more in line with those of his son. That's not a promise that life is always going to go the way you want it to. It's not a promise that, look, if you lost your job, don't worry, there's a better one around the corner. There might be, but that's not what's promised here. 
The promise is that if you love God and follow his son, he will work all things together to make you look and live more like Jesus. That's his promise to you. And so at this point, we might be thinking, well, actually, I kind of like my interpretation better. I kind of like the one where, where God works things all together in the way that I like, to give me all the things that, that I desire, right? Just like those TV and internet creatures keep telling me will happen as soon as I send them a check. <laughs> Friends, this promise is far better than, than any of that sort of promise. The end result here is far greater than something which seems nice today but may not even exist tomorrow. Paul writes to us that this occurs, that, he, that we are conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean? It means that the heart of God is to make you live more like Jesus by bringing you into his family. Remember what Paul said before. If you have faith in Christ, you are a child of God. It's our Father's heart and will to show you what that looks like and then to help you live it out. Because you're his child. And as he is the sort of father who wants what is best for his children, he will make sure that things that happen in this world will cause us to be more like the very best among us, his only true and begotten son, Jesus Christ. And in becoming more like Jesus and being made into his sibling, we gain the most precious thing that Jesus has to offer us, a loving relationship with his father. The promise of God to his children is that whatever happens in this life, good, bad, or indifferent, he will use it to draw us more fully and completely to him, to make us his very own child. And you can be sure that that will happen because of that word that kind of freaked me out a few minutes ago. Predestined. Uh-oh. We really don't like that word, do we? Predestined. Like, I feel uncomfortable just saying it, waiting for people to, like, throw tomatoes at me at this point. Paul wrote it, friends. Blame him. And that's the way that we react to it, isn't it? It's like, I really wish Paul didn't write this. Why couldn't he have used any other word? After all, if God actually loved me, he wouldn't decide anything for me, right? If he loved me, he'd leave me on my own path and let me make all of my decisions. This is where Article 17 of the 39 Articles, the, the Anglican Statement of Faith, can be helpful for us. It clarifies for us that predestination is not about God making every single decision in your life. It's not what it is at all. It's about God's saving work for you. The article states, Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby he hath constantly decreed by his counsel, secret to us, to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind, and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to honor. 
What that's trying to communicate to us is that the doctrine of predestination is meant to create confidence in the believer. Because through God's saving work, he has chosen to deliver and to save. He has chosen you for salvation, and he does not change his mind. But even this tends to make us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because instantly, our minds go to, well, what about those other folks? What about my friends and relatives and people around the world who God seems to have not chosen? Why me, not them? Well, to that I would simply say that you have no idea if God has chosen them or not. As the article states, it is his secret counsel who has saved or not. And so the church is not called to sit around and try to crack the predestination code, trying to find the line of, well, okay, so that person's clearly chosen, but that guy, no chance there. That's not at all what we are called to do. We are called to witness to Jesus. We're called to bring the gospel to the world, because it is through the witness of the church that Christ is revealed to those whom God has chosen for salvation. We don't save them. Jesus does that. We witness to him. We'll talk a lot more about that when we get to Romans 10. The other concern, of course, with predestination is what does it mean about me? What about my role? What about my agency? We want to play a role, don't we? We want to at least contribute the faith part that comes from what we think is inside ourselves so that we can feel like we've played a role in bringing about salvation. We can be an active partner with God. But when we examine the scriptures, we see that even faith itself is not something that we manufacture from within. It is a gift of God. Consider what Jesus told the crowd in John 6 when he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so any inclination we have towards Jesus cannot originate in our own hearts. Because as Paul has gone to great lengths throughout this letter to show us, our hearts are dead in sin and trespass. Before God sent Jesus to make us alive again. His work is the only ground upon which the Christian can have any confidence at all. But we can have confidence because he has worked. He has called. He has saved. And because of his work on our behalf, we can see that God is for us in the gift of assurance. Paul writes in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also just and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The point here is start to finish. The work is Christ in his alone. And because it is his work and not ours, we can have the assurance that things will work out as he has planned. When we belong to Christ, we know that everything happens in in this world, that, that it works together to make us a child of God who bears the family resemblance. B. 
Because that is what he has declared. And that process ends with the glorification of believers. It ends with spending eternity in the presence of our Father in a state of glorification, meaning we will be like Jesus. That is the end point for the Christian, not death, but becoming fully alive, being the creature we were intended to be, having life the way it was meant to be. And we can have confidence that will happen because he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Did you happen to notice that every single one of those words in our passage is in the past tense? Even the one that hasn't happened yet, even glorified. Because the truth is, if God has promised it, we can speak of it as if it's already been accomplished because nothing can stop what God accomplishes, what he intends to do in this world and in you. And he intends to have his children with him forever. In verse 33, Paul tells us that charges cannot be brought against the elect of God. Why? Because God is justified. That's done. Who is to condemn, he asks in verse 34. Christ has paid the penalty, and so there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now let's read 35 to the end, because it's it's beautiful. I'm not going to summarize. We're just going to read it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, not angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear why I want you to go home and read the whole thing? (laughs) There are no charges to be laid against those who are in Christ because justified has been declared. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because Jesus has borne the wrath of God already. And there is nothing, not all the pains, troubles, spiritual powers, not even death itself that can separate the Christian from the love of Christ. There will be moments where we'll try to come up with the thing, right? We'll be sitting around by ourselves trying to dream up the one thing that, no, this is the thing that will separate me, because that's what we do. And our enemy, the devil, will pounce on that weakness, and he will try to do everything he can to convince us that God didn't say what God has said. Just like he did in the garden, right? He'll start asking those questions. Did God really say he loves you even though you sinned? Did God really love you even when you had that thought going through your mind about that person in the pew across from you there? Does God really love you even when you do that thing that you do when no one's around to see you do it? Does he really? Yes, he does. Don't doubt that. He's declared it. 
Whenever those doubts start swirling in your mind, whenever that old sin starts nagging at your heart, whenever Satan and his minions try to convince you otherwise, we, like Paul, can go back to this and say, even in those things, we are more than conquerors. Because no matter what happens in this life, we can know that God has loved us and called us. That I know that he has given me the gift of faith in his son, and that faith tells me each and every single day that Christ died for me. And if the Father sent his son for me, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If the Father was willing to give Jesus for me, I can know that he did not do that in vain. Because of God's gracious work on our behalf, we can have the assurance of faith that nothing can or will ever separate us from his love. But let's not forget that these promises aren't just about what awaits the Christian. We can know that God is for us because of the help he gives in this life. Right here in this world. Jump back to the start of the passage. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans too deep. For words, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Our Father sent his Son to make us alive again, and he has given us his Spirit to walk with us in the challenges of this world. God knows our weaknesses. You can stop trying to hide them from him. He can see him. He knows our weaknesses. He's not ignorant to the truth that we struggle, we sin, and we are sinned against. What Paul shows us here is that the Spirit of God himself joins us in those sufferings, in our weaknesses. He groans along with us as we await the Father's work to bring all suffering to an end. He prays the things that we cannot pray because we don't know how to pray them. What a relief that should be for us. I am sure I am not the only one who constantly finds himself acknowledging that I have no idea what to pray for or how to pray for somebody. I can feel stuck and at a loss for words, really no idea where to go. But because Christ has worked in me and given me his spirit, I can still be more than confident that his spirit is praying what I can't. He is praying according to the will of God, and so whatever he is saying to the Father is perfectly right. And so even in my weak and feeble prayers, I can have confidence that perfect prayers are being offered for whatever it is I'm praying for or whatever it is I'm dealing with. Even if what I'm praying for is wrong. Even if what I'm praying for is not the will of the Father, I can believe and have confidence that the Spirit is going to correct that. Because he prays according to the will of God. And by the way, 
Just a little side note here. Not only do you have the Spirit of God entering into the struggle and into the struggles that you face in life, you also have the Son of God at the right hand of the Father interceding for you even in this moment. The Son and the Spirit constantly bring what is best for you and for all the people of God before the Father. And so we can be assured that His good ends will be worked out in this life and the next. After all, He gave His Son for you. Why would we doubt that He desires to give you all that you need? Why would we feel the need to bring our own merit and contribute our, our, our part to the party here? He's given Christ for you. He's done the work. He's with you. He simply calls us to follow him. By his power, his grace, his spirit. He's for you. Let us therefore lay down our presumptions of being good enough or needing to make ourselves good enough. Let us lay down the notion that we have anything to offer to God that can make, us, make him love us any more than he already does. And let us leave behind the fear that God might love us today, but who knows about tomorrow, for he has told us that nothing can separate us from his love. Rather, let us join with Ray Orland and with all the saints who have been made alive by God's grace and pray in faith, it is all of grace all of love, all of you. Father, I give my life back to you. He is for you. You can trust him. He loves you. And he always will. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.